Hey everybody, it's Ellen on this episode of Uniquely Portable Magic Podcast. We have a really fun episode, uh, sort of outside of our normal one for you all. We will be talking about the Nine Realms series by Sarah Kozloff. So if you don't want any spoilers, please make sure to go read all four books and then come back and join us. And if you don't care about spoilers, then listen at your own risk. Uh, This is very exciting for us and we're really happy to be able to share this with you all. Super excited to be interviewing Sarah Kosloff, who is the author of the Nine Realms series, which mm-hmm. we have read, loved, and talked about previously on our podcast. Um, she is in her second career as a novelist, was previously a professor in film at Vassar College. So we are so grateful that you decided to change your, your trajectory and write such great books that have allowed us you know to experience some amazing characters and worlds and we're so excited to have you here with us to talk about that thank you it was a bit of a gamble but um nothing ventured nothing gained and you're never you're never too old to start writing (laughs) that's beautiful i think that's (laughs) yeah i think that's really good advice (laughs) yeah (laughs) i know i'm like okay note to self (laughs) yeah no matter how many times I've said that I'll start writing, this mm-hmm. is Ellen, but it will never, I'll never be old to, too old to do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So was it, was it natural that fantasy was going to be this, the genre that you wanted to write in? Like, do you have yeah. a favorite genre? Well, I, th- I think I've always loved fantasy the most. Um, it really has to do with the fact that when I was a kid, my older brother read uh, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings aloud to myself and my other brother. Okay. He's eight years old. And this was like, a, you know, an epiphany uh, that literature could take you to a whole nother world and all these most exciting adventures. So um, when I started writing, yeah, it was, it, it was sort of natural, it would be fantasy, but I'm moving on, I'm trying other genres now. So just because you start with one, right. you have to stay there. <laughs> that's a okay. very good point. <laughs> well, that's super exciting um, to hear that you're dipping your toes in the water, you know, again, I guess right. you could say. Right. That's, wow. Um, I, I loved being read to when I was little. Um, you know, I have very fond memories of specifically my mom reading us Nancy Drew books, um, Mm -hmm. which really just helped foster my love of reading. Mm -hmm. Um, so I always love hearing, you know, it's being shared, you know, particularly with people who care about you and you, I mean, I also like audio books, but, um, it's even nicer if it's your mother or your brother, you know. Uh, because then it becomes a whole family memory mm-hmm. and um, the Lord of the Rings of course was a whole summer project and um, I remember my brother's voice used to get hoarse just when the Nazgul <laughs> were about to do something <laughs> terrifying and we'd say no you can't stop there you can't stop there you can't stop there and he'd say oh, my, my throat hurts <laughs> Uh, and and we'd have to stop so I I remember this this longing to go back to the story and to be in the story absolutely um I felt that way my dad would read the Harry Potter books to me when Mm -hmm. I was little and I 
often felt that way. And it was of course right before bedtime. So right. like he, we'd finish a chapter and I'd say, can we read more? And they'd say, no, you have to go to bed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure it's the most relaxing activity. It, I mean, it is, it's a good sort of togetherness activity, but yeah. I'm not sure it's the one that makes me most um, liable to want to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree, especially as an adult. I have learned that I cannot start reading at least a new book right before bed because I'm not going to go to sleep then. <laughs> right, right. Mm -hmm. You know, the stay up all night uh, phenomena. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm definitely yeah. one of those readers too, where <laughs> especially with fantasy, because typically there's, you know, so much action and it's easy yeah. to just dive right in. Yeah. Um, that it tends to just wake me up even more, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then everything circles in your mind. Oh, what's going to happen next? And um, so reading before bedtime has to be, you know, some other kind of book or not at all for me, for sure. <laughs> or a reread maybe, mm -hmm. something yeah. like that. Yeah. So it, would you say that Lord of, your, Lord of the Rings is one of your favorite books or it just, you know, yeah. really got you Absolutely. into fantasy? I mean, then, you know, I was older than eight and I read it myself several times. Um, yeah, but it just, it just had such a big effect on me. And then, um, you know, later I was an English major and I read Jane Austen and I read Henry James and I read all the classics, but um, I don't feel any snobbery towards uh, genre. I love genre literature. I just yeah. think I love genre film. Mm -hmm. So do you have a favorite author? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that feels very uh, familiar. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know that feeling um, and completely understand it, especially if you're someone who appreciates all different types of writing and genres, that makes it even more difficult to right, right. be able to just say, you know, this is the person who, if I could only read their books, it would be them. Right. I mean, there's certain mm -hmm. authors that you end up really liking their tone of voice mm -hmm. almost more than their stories or their characters. It doesn't really matter what the stories or the characters are. You just sort of want to be with that author. And that's how I feel about um, the fantasy author, Robin Hobb. I just, okay. want, to, I just want to hang with her. Uh, but I also feel that way about um, Anna Quinlan. I like Anna Quinlan's writing. I like, um, uh, right now I'm reading Anne Patchett, uh, The Dutch House. And I feel the same way, uh, just kind of a communion with the author's voice. Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful way to look at it because as you were saying that, I, I realized that I've experienced that but I didn't have like a, a name for it or what to call it or. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is your side identify it? Yeah. Hi, I'm back, sorry, Hi. I don't know what happened. <laughs> you were frozen the there for a moment. <laughs> my Zoom just like quit on me. So I'm surprised oh, good. you even still saw me. Um, I freaked out a little bit. So I'm glad you guys were going to carry on the conversation. Oh, we just carried on. I really, yeah. I was like, she's got to come back eventually. <laughs> Oh, that's so true. Did I miss anything important? You know, you didn't reveal the secrets of the world or anything while no, I was gone. No, no. <laughs> Actually, you did. Sorry. <laughs> we'll have to tune in to find out what it was. Mm -hmm. 
Well, so then I think this is a great time since you guys finished your, your last thoughts to kind of transition over to talking about the books that you've written, um, the Nine Realms mm-hmm. series. Uh, we would love to know what inspired you to write this epic fantasy quartet and the way that you wrote it, right? Okay, so I, I, I keep telling this story because it's true. Some, someday I'll make up a fake story, but for now <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you the truth. Um, I was teaching a course on American women directors. Uh, I was in a seminar with Vassar students. And we were looking at a list of movies that had not passed the Bechdel test. And the Bechdel test is this really low bar about female representation. Mm-hmm. You have to have two women characters who have names, <laughs> who talk to each other about something else besides the guy. Mm-hmm. So I was looking at this list of movies and the movie that did not pass the Bechdel test was Lord of the Rings. Whoa. <laughs> And yes, it has great female characters, mm-hmm. but Galadriel never talks to Arwen Evenstar. Mm-hmm. And Arwen Evenstar never talks to Eowyn. Uh, they're in separate storylines. Yeah. So this was in 2013. I said to myself, I know I've never written a short story but I'm going to write an epic fantasy that can pass the Bechtel test. (laughs) And so that summer, I just started to write. Um, And I did not write an outline. I did not (laughs) sit down and create all my characters' backstories. I did not uh, create my world and dress it all up and decide on organizing flavors. I just started to write. And then at the end of two years, I had four books. That's that's incredible to me. Like I can't even, like, I feel like I can't even get through a day without like planning. Like I just, that's incredible. (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm pretty compulsive planner in my life. Okay. this, I gave myself permission to kind of turn off that side of my brain. Where am I going? Where is this taking me? Where is this leading me? And characters started to run away with me um, and I let them. I mean, I never sat down and said, oh, I want a headmaster named Miki who gets down on the floor and draws pictures of dolphins. Um, nope, she just appeared. and did what she did. (laughs) I love that so much. Yeah. I mean, that sounds definitely like amazing creative process to me, you know, whatever works well for you is, I mean, and obviously it worked because these books. I was just going to say, clearly it worked really well. (laughs) Well, I think experienced writers, I mean, because what I didn't, it was longer. Mm. And so what I had to do a lot of what I had to do was pair out extraneous characters, extraneous scenes, extraneous 
storylines. Sure. And so that that to an extent was a waste of time if I hadn't, you know, but I don't, I don't know if they're really, if the storylines and scenes are really gone. I, I call them ghost chapters and think that they still sort of enriched the world, even though they're not in the final, in the final um, product. Yeah. I like oh that way of looking at them. Um, so you said that you started just writing. Did you ever in the process have to then start outlining and keeping track of things or it just was all in your head and you could just, you know, come and go because there's I, I a lot of complexity. Shifting point of view. So it was sort of like, hmm, how, who haven't we checked in on recently? And, and uh, I would just move across the, across the globe. I, no, I never outlined. Um, then later after the books were sold and after parts of it had been cut and I was working with an editor, then some things got shifted around and some things got cut. Um, some more things got cut, but um, yeah, no, I never outlined. I just can't, I can't. <laughs> in the best way, I cannot get over that. Um, yeah, that's so incredible. Did you have an idea in your head that you like wanted a set number? Like, I think we both, Alex and I both loved like these big cinematic scenes that you were able, like, did you, uh, to create, did you ever like think to yourself, okay, each book needs X amount of, of cinematography in it, like, <laughs> or, or was it still just part of that process? I think that because I taught film for so many years and actually when I was um, in graduate school, I studied narrative theory. So I sort of have ingrained in me this waiting for this big climax, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yes, every, every book had to have some major climax towards the end right. of it. Um, the, I was a little deliberate about the big battle scenes, what I did was I wrote them as montage, where I'm cutting from one character to another, not in between chapters, but in between paragraphs. And that's why they take on this very um, like shot, 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 cut, 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 right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what makes them like the, um, the battle in Femturin or uh, the last scene in the harbor. That's what makes them exciting and different. Um, <laughs> Very exciting. <laughs> I'm not sure if readers are, are fully engrossed. I'm not sure they even notice what I've done. Oh, I definitely I, noticed. Yes. Oh, see, I didn't. What, what, stood out, what stood out to me was how vivid those you know, battle scenes were. And I think uh -huh. it was something that Ellen and I have discussed before about how it was so much easier to imagine and like mm -hmm. see in my mind's eye mm -hmm. what was actually happening. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because of the way that you wrote it <laughs> intentionally. <laughs> if, if you went back and looked at the, and, uh, the um, a, a normal chapter versus one of the battle scenes, you'll just see the way the type faces. I don't know if people are doing it in audiobook, um, whether that would come across, right? Mm -hmm. But if you look at the typeface, you can see 
uh, how I cut. Um, and that's why you can go from uh, Thalen's point of view to Cerulean's point of view to um, Tristo's point of view or whoever. Mm -hmm. All right. Alex, that also means you were right. You were pronouncing his name properly. <laughs> oh, yes. yeah. Thalen was one of those characters where we yes. uh, came together after reading the book and we're talking about it and she was saying one name and I was saying a completely other name and <laughs> we didn't well, I don't know how, how anyone would know I mean uh, mostly I did I went for the most straightforward vowel sounds so yeah. it's usually a, a long vowel you know, it's it's so funny because I when I read the first book, I was calling him Talon, but then we were talking about it on the podcast, and she said Thalen, and I said, well, that makes a lot more sense because I was thinking like the TH and Tom, you know, or Thomas, right. and um, and then I don't know what I was going with the rest of the name. <laughs> um, but after she explained it, I was like, well, that makes so much more sense, and so after that, I was calling him Thalen, but mm -hmm. yes, I did yeah. not have that one correct at all. <laughs> Well, I guess in thinking of um, some of the names of places and characters in your mm -hmm. books, it's making me um, just come even more astounded that you didn't outline this book because of the way that you named things. To me, keeping track of all of that, I would need to have like charts and everything. So yeah. how did you come up with that? You know, that, that? Some of... Um... I have to tell you, down to the last version, I was getting the baker and the head cook in the palace mixed up. I still don't remember whether Borta's the baker and Bessie's the cook or vice versa. Okay. But that's why you have copy editors. <laughs> and she made a big um, list of all of my characters and caught all of those kinds of mistakes. Okay. But I was also trying very hard to uh, help the reader by making family resemblances. I used to walk across campus, this comes straight out of Tolkien, saying, Gimli, son of Glowen, Gimli, son of Glowen, because, um, I thought that that kind of naming was just a great way of saying these people are a family. Gimli, you know, and it wasn't rhyming, but it was almost rhyming. Mm -hmm. So that's why I have uh, Hake and Thalen. Uh, it's not rhyming, but it's almost rhyming. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. For me, I would say that. The naming conventions that you had that were even some were rhyming or extremely right. similar yeah. was very helpful for me um i think yes. ellen <laughs> not so much <laughs> well in, in in some ways yes like for the family yeah like version of that that was very helpful okay so those people are related those people right. are from the same place right. um but um <laughs> i was very recently diagnosed with adhd and so i find that sometimes when there are multiple names that are similar. All of a sudden I'm confusing them just in my own brain. And then yeah. I'm like, why is this person here? They haven't been here. Oh, that's <laughs> this, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, um, the appendix at the back helps a lot. Mm -hmm. um, 
and the map helps a lot. And unfortunately, I mean, I know the reasons not to start with the appendix at the beginning because it looks kind of off-putting. Uh, <laughs> sure. Scary, right? But I wish there were it. it there was a notice at the front that said, you know, if you're confused, <laughs> there is an appendix. I, you know, it's funny because I saw the appendix when I flipped through the first book and then I kind of forgot about it as I sunk into your story. Um, but then definitely in the later books, when I would remember that it was there, yeah. I was, I would multiple times yeah. I was flipping to the back. Yeah. There are, there are 600 characters. So if you got confused, <laughs> <laughs> it's perfectly understandable it's it became a world yeah full of everybody from you know the lowest page boy to the to past kings yeah so, yeah 600 holy smokes <laughs> yeah for four books that's that's a lot packed into um one series yeah wow so I guess part of the world building in these books that I really loved was that you could really see the difference in the cultures of all of the realms and just the, the mindsets of the people being different, their, you know, belief systems, the colloquialisms that you used. Mm -hmm. So was that another instance where having a copy editor was really necessary or was that you were able? That I did myself through a process of layering. I think the first, the first things I decided were the hair color and the religion. Okay. And once I had the, you know, which God uh, was, which spirit um, was watching out over that country then sort of everything came from that. Um, okay. The water, the fountains, mm -hmm. the cerulean blue came from Nargis, right? And the, the big draft horses and the chiseling and the statues came because Rotharad um, spirit is, is a spirit of stone. So, right? Yeah. And then, by the time I was revising all four of them, I went back through and I was doing things with food and beds. I don't know if you noticed, but every country has its own bed. Um, I did not notice. <laughs> and I was trying to add in more details and that was just a sort of um, layering, of, accretion of the differences between the countries. And well, I was already planning on rereading these, but now I'm like, I can't wait to reread these and like <laughs> sink into this even more. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> so it was, you know, the beds, um, the beds uh, rock in the third book because we're in the land of the healing. Um, anyway, you can go back and yeah. see kind of things are kind of rocker beds. Oh my God, I'm so, I'm so extra excited to go reread these books now. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, I'm glad somebody's interested in these details. I put all these things in and then mostly nobody even notices and they just say, well, how dare you've killed off my favorite character in book three. And I'm like, is that all you have to say to me? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, I think 
one of the things that we talk about on our podcast is rereading and how I used to not reread books. And over the past couple of years, I've started to, and the differences that you really notice and the things that you can't believe that you didn't pick up on initially, um, (laughs) are huge. And so, yeah, getting some insight into what we should be looking for and noticing is really cool. I think for us. Yeah. Good. Good. So yeah. So that's how I did my world building. Um, although I do, I have to say that the copy editor did help me with distances. I got some, some almost panicked emails saying, Sarah, there's no way they could have traveled this distance in this amount of time. <laughs> and I, oh, 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 okay, I better fix that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's, I don't think, see, that's a very good reason to have a copy editor amongst many, I'm sure, because that's not something I don't think I would even think of either is yeah. how long would it actually take somebody to get from point A to point B. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Were there there? who work out the phases of the moon during their stories? I didn't. I didn't do that. First of all, I I have two moons, and it was just impossibly complicated. So yeah, I mean, everybody works works on different levels of detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. very Gosh, true. Phases of the moon. My goodness. Yeah, that's a new one. <laughs> uh, so, speaking, I guess, of different levels of detail and. Um, obviously your characters are very complex and, um, we loved them and it seems like, um, there's the possibility that you could have pulled from, you know, people in your life Mm -hmm. as inspiration or, you know, easily could have everything just could have been from you in your head, you know, Mm -hmm. down on paper. What did you do to create these characters? It's a mixture of all the stories and films and living I've done and some parts of me. So for instance, uh, Sumroth, the Oromondo general. Yeah. I have a little bit of face blindness and I'm always trying to hide it okay. from my students. I- Really, I know I recognize your face, but I cannot remember your name. Okay. <laughs> so I gave that quality to him just to make him a more dimensional person. And also for reason that he was um, uh, always a little reserved and friendless and so bonded with the one person whose face he always knew, which is his wife, Zia. Sure. So that that was a bit of me. Um, I think um, Stalia, the foster mother, her sort of crankiness. um, That's that's quite a bit of me. (laughs) Her so much. (laughs) But other people are, you know, just sort of composites. Yeah. Okay. So you were, you mentioned earlier that when you were writing the book, this character sort of ran away with you. Mm -hmm. Um, So did you find that you, did you ever like write a scene and you found that you were surprised that that's how that happened? Or Mm -hmm. were there ones that were particularly hard to write or did it just kind of come out? 
mostly just came out. Okay. Um, though I have to say of the books, book one was the hardest to write um, because it was the first book I had ever written. Sure. Um, but also it's got a structural problem in that it has to cover so much time. Sure. Mm -hmm. And if the other books are sort of more exciting, it's because they take place over much more compressed periods of time. Sure. Having to take Cerulea from age eight to 19 or 20, that that was that was a, a jump that maybe as a novice author, I never really cracked as to my satisfaction. Okay. Well, I would have said you did a great job with it. So yeah. <laughs> I agree. I mean, it was enough that we were itching to read the next books. There right? you go. There uh, you go. Yeah. You, think, said, you guys said you liked book two the most. Was there a reason? Um, well, for me, I think what I liked most about it was um, the connections that characters that we had grown to love well I had grown to love in the first book and then um they're making connections with each other and so I loved that the worlds were finally sort of but when they find that's the scene when uh Cerulea is finally in the in the raiders camp yes yep and it just so for me it was the relationships that were being built and especially for Cerulea like she of course had her little foster family but that she was creating more connections and a larger group of people and of course with the hope that you know she's going to take back her power you know right. you want her to have a huge you know group of people who are there for her no matter what so right. um that was probably it for me what about you Alex yeah I mean I think um one of the reasons why I liked the second book the most is it did have the most action in terms of like battle scenes yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of different types of action in right. all of the books, um, but the second one did have the most like fighting it scenes. It has, it has the most. Uh, it has some small battles, and then it has some big battles. Mm -hmm. I I love the battle when the um, um, God, now I can't remember anybody's name, but when the guys are trying to kidnap the little kids um oh and yes and avatar get involved and the goats start fighting <laughs> that was so much fun to write i yeah i can imagine that <laughs> yes i loved that scene um yeah, the i think that was also part of it too for me so the battles because as we've mentioned just the the way that you've written them they're just so amazing to read through mm -hmm. but then also you get so many great animals mm -hmm. interactions um mm -hmm. I mean you have them in every book but in this the second one it's almost like you get so many more characters yeah. out of it because yeah. she's interacting yeah. with so many more yeah. animals um and I also I don't know if it was necessarily this book versus across the entire um quartet of books but mm -hmm. the the animals just really provided great little tidbits of humor throughout mm -hmm. that just mm -hmm. helped you know get through some of the tougher scenes and uh, they I also made was... they also made some of the tougher scenes that much more difficult yeah I know <laughs> like... <laughs> but I do love the gambles 
in a broken queen who are running down the streets going, yoo-hoo, queenie. (laughs) You couldn't have put that in an outline. I mean, that just (laughs) came to me. And now I can't get it. I can just hear them. I just see them. They're running around the city going, yoo-hoo, queenie. She's going, shh, shh, shh. I'm incognito. I'm incognito. Shut up. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I really loved I really loved the uh the birds in the second book Mm -hmm. um and then I also loved like the dolphins and the whales in the third book right is is, I guess technically really where we see them um yeah like that chapter when they're ferrying her out to sea Mm -hmm. um I just was asked to do a reading and I I said this is not really representative so the books as a whole but I read that um, because it's so much fun the turtle to the sea lions to the dolphins to the yeah, well, yeah. it is because they all speak so differently and they all have very concrete opinions about themselves <laughs> yes. versus you know the other species right. and yeah that was just that was really great did you was that something that kind of just happened that the humor uh, a lot of the humor of your books is with the animals or was that you know more intentional as you started that then it continued you're like okay this is going to be where a lot of humor comes from um I think I started it I mean it does start in book one with the old dog who's so 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 deaf he doesn't even know they're being attacked right um and then just goes on from there yeah. um, there are some moments when the people are funny or there's uh-huh. a, you know irony amongst the people like when willem says i'm so glad i have nothing to do with royalty because these people are nuts right little does he know that he's fostering you yeah. know but um uh the animals were easy to make funny um and they were at the cat the cat on the ship. Oh my gosh, that was one of my favorites. Yeah. I think we brought that up in our podcast episode about that book because that just, oh, it was so great. What I loved about what you did with all of these animals is that not only did you create these voices, but they made sense for like what the animal was. Like, right. and I was just, I was just shocked by how much like, you know, with the cat, I was like, that definitely seems like what a cat would be doing or all the sea creatures. Oh yes. That makes sense for a, a turtle or a sea lion or, a, you know, right. Right. Or yeah. wacky or telling her, you know, uh, we're going to eat soon. So whatever you're worried about, it doesn't really matter. That's my dog. Totally. Yes, exactly. <laughs> if food is part of the problem, she's fine. She doesn't right, care. Right. And then I think it's kind of a great scene when she's ambushed by the mountain lion and the mountain lion says, "What? why are you hanging out here? You have to go back and get your throne. And she says, you're being so rude to me. <laughs> so. so were animals a big part of your life that they were such a big part of your books or not necessarily? My parents did not let us have a pet. My big um, rebellion came at age 35 when I got my first dog. Um, But that's how long it took me to rebel. But um, since then, you know, we haven't been without 
a dog in the house and I love that several cats and whatever yeah I like horses too yeah, yeah. so <laughs> that's pretty great yeah animals make everything better yes yes and they this, really do. this um dream that you know we could talk to animals it's a very um seductive and attractive dream i mean most people most people share it absolutely um, i can't count i don't think I, we can count the number of times that alex and i either on the podcast or just as we were reading these books were like wouldn't it be so great if we could just talk to animals <laughs> yeah like what a great magical ability right I don't, need to power. Be, I don't need to be invisible i don't care about flying who cares about flying i want to talk to my dog yeah <laughs> In my, in my case, my dog, Maisie, she is very much like my way or the highway. Uh-huh. <laughs> she's our little diva and we love her. Um, but she gets into these moments where she's so demanding and we've like, we've taken her outside. We've gotten her water. Like we have, and I just look at her and I'm like, I wish you could just tell me what <laughs> is what going on here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what do you need? I can't help you. <laughs> I don't <laughs> Just tell me. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I think we touched upon our favorite books. Um, but I don't know if we ever, if you ever mentioned if you had a favorite book of the four that you've of written. Four? Yeah. Um, I think I like the Cerulean Queen the most because it has um just to me that that heart lifting. Um, resolution of all these people who have been separated over 2,000 pages (laughs) coming together and all the secrets being revealed Mm -hmm. and um, the scene where Thalen and the Raiders march into the throne room yes they start shouting at Cerulea Um, I must have read that just for my own pleasure, I must have reread that scene just to myself 20 times because it, it, provi- it provided such fulfillment. Yeah. And yeah. I love, and I love that Thalem is like, be serious. We've got to be, you know, like we've got to be professional. We're meeting the queen. Let's be, <laughs> right. you know, so and then all of a sudden he's like, he's like, wait a second, what's happening? they start start yelling at her right Right? exactly (laughs) yeah I think Ellen you mentioned that this the fourth book was like your very close second oh yeah that you that you also really loved it too um well I'm a sucker for a good reunion right and we get that of course sort of at the end of the third book but then you know just like you said like the fourth book is just I was so happy reading the whole book. <laughs> I mean, I was certainly stressed out in other parts of it, um, especially because I said to this Alex, or I said to Alex <laughs> during the podcast that I um, I was so wrapped up in all of those beautiful reunions that <laughs> when the Oro Army showed up at the end, I was like, oh, I forgot all about that. <laughs> good, good. I'm so glad. I wanted everybody to forget that the Oros were on their way. I wanted everybody just to say, oh, now we're in the romance. Oh, it's going great. And I wanted the fact that Belcazar was a traitor just to be a big shock. Yeah. And- 
Oh, good. It's, I totally, they showed up and I was like, oh, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I knew the ships were coming, but totally did not see the Oro soldiers being on the ships. Like uh-huh. that just completely surprised me. Um, Belcazar's betrayal, like you have a feeling that something's going to happen there, but you don't know that he's like, I didn't think he would be involved with complete right. shock. Right. Mm-hmm. Multiple shock factors in right. that one. Oh, good. Oh, good. I get it. <laughs> oh, that went off. Well, it was very <laughs> successful because I was just floored when they showed up. I was like, oh, how did I forget about that? <laughs> and then um, I stole from Hitchcock to have the birds enter the, the fight. Uh, that's that comes straight from Hitchcock's The Birds. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, book four is to me the most satisfying. Also, I agree. it's sort of, um, it's, there's so much music and dancing going on in it. It seems to me to be a little bit like a movie musical that it's really sort of hitting all these notes of fulfillment and joy. Um, yeah, whereas I think of book two as a Western with all the horses and the camping out and yeah. water, right? I don't know how to, how to characterize book three. Everybody's kind of broken and lost and scattered. Yeah. That's interesting that you see your books through a film lens. Yes. You know? Yes. Well, so in hearing your story about the Bechdel test, mm-hmm. that makes total sense to me that you were like, I need to do something about this, right? Mm-hmm. Like I know for Ellen and I, um, I think it's one of the reasons why we tend to read more often some young adult fantasy versus mm-hmm. some of the adult fiction because there seems to be a lot more, you know, female and feministic writing in that portion of fantasy, mm-hmm. um, especially with so many of the, you know, more well-known authors, the older fantasy books tend to have, you know, the main protagonist is a male character, which isn't problematic. You know, I enjoy reading that, but, yeah. you know, I got you gotta mix it up sometimes, right? Right. So, I mean, there are, I did find out that there were plenty, uh, scores, dozens of fantasies that oh, would pass the Bechtel test. Yes. But um, I wanted, I wanted even more than that. I wanted different generations of women. I wanted, you know, from, from babies to older women. I love my old women running the war and running the resistance, the crone network running, right? And for the longest time, I wanted um, Persia and Cerulea's friendship to be like the driving force of the whole thing. I think I lost that a little bit. Um, Persia just turns out to be a friend or whatever. But um, um, originally the book started with Persia and Cerulea meeting in the play garden. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was the what I thought was the first chapter. Oh, okay. And then people, some readers said, well, you have this long description of the fountain and Perseus not the main character and we're from Stalia's POV. We really okay. have to start from, 
from Ceruleus PLV or Crassus PLV, you know, we have to be closer to the Royals. Mm -hmm. So that got pushed a little and, okay. and it got demoted a little, but um, the books were intended to be feminist, not just in having women protagonists, but having a variety of women from all stations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are a lot of books that, you know, rarely have servants in them or lower class people. And Nana is very important in, in the series, right? Yeah. yeah, well, and I guess I should clarify, not obviously, as you said, not all fantasy, um, <laughs> you know, is just male centric, but I think that's been a stereotype of the genre. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the I guess questions that popped into my head when I heard you describe like your inspiration for the book is what made you decide to write books versus doing something like writing a script to become, you know, a movie mm -hmm. if when you have this film background, right? I I know too much about how difficult it is to get a, a movie greenlit. It's okay. just impossible. Um and I was never going to try to raise the money to do independent, you can't, I, you know, you all the CGI you'd have to do and the trained <laughs> animals. And I had a certain freedom, just me and my computer. Sure. I didn't need anybody else. And I didn't even, when I started, I didn't even really know that these were going to be published. I wasn't sure whether I was just doing this for fun. And it wasn't until I got the contract from Tor that um, I even told anybody about it because I didn't want to be another one of those. Oh, I've written this great novel, but I can't get it. You know? Yeah. It, so it's kind of secret until it was going to actually be printed. Was it hard to publish it then after it being sort of your secret for such a long time or not even secret, but like just no, your I was ready. thing? I was, I was ready. In fact, uh, we had, it, the publication date got pushed a little bit because marketing and whatever. I was, I was ready six months before it came out. <laughs> Let's see if anybody likes this. <laughs> well, I saw so. it, you know, I was at Barnes and Noble like I am very frequently and I saw it on the shelf and I bought it immediately the whole series because I I read the back covers and I was like I have to I have to read these <laughs> oh so it really has shelf appeal that's oh. that's tours doing the the crowns and the you know and they retitled it those are their titles okay and, oh. and um, my editor Jen Gunnels wrote the back copy for all of them okay she also those little tag uh, lines on the front. Those are covers. such good hook lines. <laughs> Aren't they great? Oh, yeah. I started uh, jumping up and down and screaming. She didn't show, you know, you're only the author. You don't, you don't get to see much of the behind the scenes stuff until okay. it's all set and approved. So I didn't know what the tagline for book four was going to be until shortly before it was released and then oh, I gosh. saw the final cover and it says the return of the queen yeah <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> absolutely 
absolutely. Yeah. Well, I have to say you, you had a great team working with you then because yeah, the, the appeal of the books was very evident, I think, to both of us, even before we like dug into the actual content and meat of it. So do you have a favorite cover out of all of the ones? Is it, is it the fourth book with that amazing tagline? No, I think uh, it's, it's either Queen of Raiders with the fire. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just so eye-catching. Or it's a broken queen with the broken crown. That one's my favorite. So evocative, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It also made me very nervous when I was buying the whole series. I was like, book three is going to be hard to read, isn't it? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's yeah. so emotional when I read. I was like, this one's going to be a difficult one. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, the combination of the broken crown and the tagline for that book was just, yeah, immediate trepidation in even <laughs> opening the cover. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, well, there's some, there is some hard stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what uh, the brother who read me uh, The Lord of the Rings, what he likes best about my series is that I kill people off, sort of. <laughs> um mercilessly because yeah. I think it's so realistic that you yeah. know and it's what and it sort of annoys me that Tolkien could not sacrifice any of the hobbits or any of the main characters of Lord of the Rings. Oh he'll kill Theoden, oh he'll kill off Boromir. Right. But none of none of the ones that your heart is really connected to, he couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And that's well, so, I mean, even Gandalf comes back. Right. So. <laughs> I will say um, the, the, the Hobbits are probably my favorite in, mm-hmm. in that whole fellowship. So on that note, I'm very glad that they are still there. Like I, my, I have a, I have two dogs and the female is Maisie. And then I named Pippin after <laughs> my favorite. <laughs> so I'm very grateful personally that he didn't kill any of them off. Um, although I can see why it would make for such a, I mean, it would be very evocative if he would have done that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so here's something I want to ask you since you guys have read the whole series. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted um, readers as they were going along to think that Cerulea was basically really moral and good and to wonder a little bit about Thalen when he goes out searching for vengeance and he's killing all these people in Oramunda. But then I wanted to switch that upside down in book four. So were there moments in book four where you sort of said, oh my God, Cerulea, what are you doing? And are you right to do this? Or, and conversely, were there moments when you said, yeah, Thalen, you, you really uh, have grown into a more uh, perceptive person? For me, there were definitely points where I had that feeling about Thalen, where I noticed sort of how far he had come from that very vengeful character that he was. 
Um, but I don't think I had any of those thoughts with Cerulea. I think I was, I was so excited that she was back and she was taking control and, um, that so Matwick, that it, Matwick it, was gone. It, it, it didn't bother you that she kills Lolithia. It didn't bother you that she lets Matwick die of thirst. Um, no, I'm I was really, totally... I'm really, I'm really embarrassed <laughs> to say no, not at all. Yeah, I think, I think for me, um, Thalen, it wasn't necessarily in the fourth book so much as throughout the second book. Mm -hmm. Like there was already so much growth in terms of how he viewed the world and his responsibilities and, you know, right versus wrong, which you really see when he tries to tell Cerulea that, you know, revenge isn't right. worth it right? right um and I think that's one of the first instances where you really see that change right. but for Cerulea she always came across to me as someone who you know had a decent moral compass but was very open to absorbing everything around her right. um and you know being open to altering you know, based on new points of view. And so the fourth book to me was really that culmination of all of her travels. And all of a sudden you have this really young ruler who seems, you know, a bit wiser than you would anticipate since this is her first, you know, foray into ruling. Right. And I think some of those instances where you, you questioned whether we would be okay with her killing off certain people I mean, it seemed more like she was making the best decision that she could and it wasn't, and yeah. And the fact that it wasn't like revenge driven. Right. And I think that made a huge difference. And then the fact that, you know, if she was a man, would we, would you even have asked that question? question. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think I have a sentence when she has her confrontation with Matlick where she's she, I say, she was as he had made her. Mm. That having been an orphan and running for her life, there's a strain of ruthlessness in Mm -hmm. her, which probably is gonna make her a really good queen. I mean, you have to have that kind of strength. Um, Whereas Thalen realizes that the Oros were just poor blighted boys who never had a chance in life right Mm -hmm. Uh, he he ends up being sort of more sympathetic and understanding and less ruthless Mm -hmm. than she is yeah yeah well I think also too though like you said her ruthless streak will make her a good ruler yeah so if we were judging her by just being you know a normal person civilian whatever then maybe her viewpoints would be we would see them in a different light right but you know as a ruler that requires yeah and she realizes I mean that whole bit she has to realize that her mother was was too weak right um, Mm -hmm. got overthrown and she has to do better right um so I mean there are reasons for it all but I, I also sort of liked doing that 
doing that switch. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Again, another reason to read, <laughs> read the series again. So really pick up on that some more. Did you guys pick up, I mean, there's so many references to movies and so many references to Lord of the Rings. Um, okay, well, I'm just going to put out this caveat that I am terrible with references and movie references. Like oh. anytime Ellen says something, you know, quote something, I'm like, wait, I know it. I'm sure I know, I, I recognize what you're saying, but if she doesn't, doesn't tell stick. me what movie it's from, I, yeah. I yeah. can't remember. It's like me with faces. I, I can't, yeah. Um, so those all went right over my head. Over I don't your, know. <laughs> I don't know. About I think one. they were mostly just for my own amusement, you know. Um, there's a character named Hecht and there was a very famous screenwriter named Ben Hecht and, mm. you know, I just, I just put these little things in there because I yeah. fun. Yeah. Little Easter eggs. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, um, it's actually really funny that you say that because I don't think I picked up on uh, too many Lord of the Rings hints, but I, I had this moment in the third book after we meet Cielo, is that how you pronounce his name? Um, where he seemed a lot like Yoda to me. So I had some, I had for a, for a long time, I was, I was sort of picturing him as Cerulea's Yoda, right? He was helping mm -hmm. her finish her healing. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if you intended that at all, but <laughs> he, like, he, well, was, like, he, he spoke. spoke. Yeah, he yeah. supposed to speak like Italian. It was what I was working on. Okay. <laughs> and so it's pretty far from Yoda. Uh, but um, his word order, his syntax is a little off, right? Yeah. Uh, and, but it was supposed to make him kind of different and sexy, uh, not yeah. Yoda-ish. <laughs> well, you, I had the moment right after he and Cerulea spend the night together that I was uh, like, I thought to myself, I was like, Yoda would not have done that. <laughs> like, <laughs> Um, I love the scene in book four where she realizes he can't be her bodyguard. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. that's kind of a chilling moment when she realizes that having him close to her, yeah, is danger. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I thought that, I thought that was very powerful, um, and that she. Uh, what I loved is that she, you know, brought that to him. She told him to leave, and then he did. Like, and I thought right. that was very you know, cause um, it could have very well been, you know, a, a, a big moment of even more tension that was already right, there. Right, right. <laughs> um, he but the fact that he respected yeah. her wishes. Yeah, so he comes back. Well, yes, of course. Oh, yes. <laughs> thankfully so, he comes back. <laughs> thankfully he comes back. I had so much fun with him coming up out of the harbor. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So, okay. Um, <laughs> do, do you have any other questions? What else is, is there anything else on your mind? Um, Ellen, do you wanna go for it? Or is there one or two questions that we didn't hit on that, you're, that you really need to know, burning desire? I don't think so. Um, I guess maybe we could close this out. Like if there was one thing that you wanted people to know about your series or um, like one way that you would characterize them? 
Like, what would you say about the Nine Realms series? Well, I think uh, they are about perseverance, which is not an unusual theme, but one that maybe a young author wouldn't think of. I mean, I'm retirement age. Um, I've gone through births and deaths and life. Um, and um, I wanted my characters to go through real struggles and have to uh, reach deep to persevere. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and they do, and most of them do. Um, and it's not that everything will end up perfect just through perseverance, but you'll get, you'll get somewhere, <laughs> you'll yeah. end up, right? You can't Absolutely. sit down in the middle of the road and cry like, <laughs> like, like the tykes do at one point. Mm -hmm. um, you, know, you, you have to get up and keep going. Yeah, I think you did that very well. Yeah, I would say I definitely connected on an emotional level based on that overarching theme mm -hmm. across the book multiple times. Yeah, good, mm -hmm. good, okay. Well, um, uh, Tor has asked me if I will return to the Nine Realms. Oh, and write oh. a sequel someday. And um, I'm, you know, thinking about it, kicking some ideas around. Uh, but my next book is um, really literary fiction with a kind of fantastical bent. It's okay. about um, fairies that are born in the beam of uh, movie projectors. Oh. So it's called Beam of Life. Okay. About a uh, movie theater over a hundred year span. Oh, I'm very intrigued. <laughs> and I think the book I'll work on after that is kind of a um, journalistic thriller. Because thrillers are fun, right? Yeah. Uh, and I want to um, uh, have this. Um, journalism teacher who needs to go and rescue one of her one of her former students so that's that's half I actually wrote an outline for that one oh I'm <laughs> sorry um, <laughs> and then maybe I'll come back to the nine realms well I think if you do you at least have two people who will definitely <laughs> read it <laughs> Mm -hmm. that's good and it's good you're so young so you can wait for me to do this another five years very eagerly um no those all sound fascinating okay yeah. sign me up for one of each of them okay mm -hmm. okay you'll be established uh famous podcasters at, at that point and you'll say oh sarah it's so nice to have you back again <laughs> absolutely yeah wouldn't that be the dream um who knows what will happen it could be that we still only have you know 10 people listening to us in a couple of years but hopefully not <laughs> we talk about well, it every week and i'm like i'm pretty sure most of it is like just our family but 
you know, <laughs> you've got to start somewhere. <laughs> well, I'll, if you send me all the details, I'll put it on my Twitter. Uh, and so uh, maybe you'll pick up a few more. Well, thank you. That sounds great. Okay. Well, thanks for spending the time with us. Um, we're super excited for your new project. So yes, can't wait. we'll definitely uh, okay. stay on top of when those come out. And, okay. Okay. Um, and thank well, you so much you for both. joining us. Stay healthy. Yeah. You yes. too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Bye. Right. Bye. Bye.